Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. God loves the world. God loves humanity more than any person does. God loves the world so much he gave his one and only son, right? So you can't get a greater love for people than God has. And with that deep, deep, great, great love that God has, if God ends up having to judge somebody, you realize that, yeah, that was the only alternative. There was no other remedy. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Ezekiel chapters 6 through 11. Now, here's Pastor Brian. You know, the things that people who have given themselves over to idolatry, the things that people believe today, it's astounding how the, the idols of today have so radically blinded people's minds to just common sense and, and obvious truth and error. They can't see the difference. And so it was with these. They were bowing down to the sun. He said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. This phrase, putting the branch to their nose, is it's very perplexing for translators. Nobody knows exactly what it means. And so the guess is that the idea is They're putting a branch to my nose, but not a branch, but a stench. So they become a stench in the Lord's nose because of their behavior. That's what the best guess of the Hebrew translators is. So therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. So this is all the vision that um, Ezekiel is seeing. So Ezekiel, of course, is, you know, like he said, he's suspended between heaven and earth. So he's in this place where he's, he's seeing the spiritual realm. He's seeing things that nobody else has seen. And so now what he sees is he sees these who have these weapons in their hand. I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and they stood beside the bronze altar. So man, think about that. It's like, you know, so Ezekiel, he's viewing all of this And the people are all going about their business and engaging in their sin and their idolatry. And right in their midst are these judges that God has sent to deal with them. And they're they're completely blind to it. It's kind of like the story of Balaam. Remember how Balaam was riding his donkey and he was trying to go to Balak. And God was angry with Balaam. So he was going to deal with him. And, 
as the donkey's going along, the angel of the Lord is standing in the road with his sword drawn, ready to take off Balaam's head. Balaam can't see him, but the donkey can see him. And so the donkey, you know, the donkey runs off the path and Balaam beats him and gets him back on the path. And then, you know, finally the donkey just, he just sits down and, you know, I'm not budging. And Balaam's yelling and screaming at the donkey. And all of a sudden the donkey just starts talking to him. I was reading that story this week and just thinking, how amazing. The donkey's like, look, what are you doing? Why are you beating me? I, 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 I've been your donkey for a long time. Have I ever behaved like this before? No, you stupid donkey, you haven't. What are you doing? I'm going to kill you. And then suddenly, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel with a drawn sword. So the point is, that's what's happening here. Ezekiel sees this, nobody else sees it. And so now, he says, the glory of the Lord God of Israel. Now this is the beginning of the departing of the Lord from Jerusalem. So remember, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the Lord descended in that dedication and there on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord had resided in the temple from that time forward. And what Ezekiel is now going to witness is the departure of God. The glory of God is going to, by the time we finish, the glory of God will have departed from Jerusalem. And so the glory of the Lord God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been, verse 3, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men, the women, the mothers, and the children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. So God's judgment now is again beginning to be poured out upon Jerusalem. And there's two things here that are very interesting. Put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things. So there were still faithful people in the city who were grieved and heartsick over the sin of the city. And so the Lord says, mark them. And basically they will be spared. So they will be the ones that will go off in the final captivity to Babylon because everybody's going to end up in Babylon or dead, one, one or the other with a few exceptions. So they're to be marked. But I want you to notice what it says about them, that they grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done. You know, this is the posture of, of us in the world that we live in today. As we look at the sinfulness of the world and the, the rebellion against God, 
that we see all around us. Our, our attitude is, is to be one of grief and lament. You know, as we cry out to God, and it's interesting because as we go a little bit further, we're going to see that Ezekiel, even, even when the judgment comes upon the, the wicked people, Ezekiel doesn't rejoice in it. Ezekiel's not like, that's right, God, you got them. Ezekiel is lamenting, he's grieving. And, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about this on Sunday, but we have to be careful that we don't get this attitude toward the people in the world, that, that kind of Jonah attitude where we just say, God, just judge them, just destroy them, just wipe them out. Oh, come on, God. And we're just hoping that something will happen. That's not to be the attitude um, because God himself, even as he declared through, the, through Isaiah, through the other prophets, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. And so we're, we're to have this attitude, one of grief and lament. And so I want you to also notice something here that they are to go, these executioners are to go through and they are to kill without showing pity or compassion. And, you know, old men, young men, women, mothers, children, everyone. Now, in the book of Joshua, we have similar commands given in the time of Joshua in regard to the Israelites going into the land of Canaan and being God's instrument of judgment upon the Canaanites. And many people today, modern people, skeptics, people who just, you know, want to find a cause against God, they, they often point to the destruction of the Canaanites as this is a reason that I won't believe in in a God like this because he's into genocide. He's into ethnic cleansing. And so they try to put a spin on it like that. Like, you know, the Israelites, they were just another, uh, an early version of those who have come along later in history and ethnically cleansed, you know, gotten rid of a certain people group uh, because of their ethnicity or something like that, wiped them out so they could take over their land and all of that. And, and so this is a common thing among critics of scripture and people who are atheistically minded is to point to this and talk about, you know, this, this horrible God who supposedly favors this group of people and then destroys this other group of people. But this had nothing to do with their ethnicity. It had nothing to do with any of those kinds of things. It had only to do with one thing, and that was their continued sin and rebellion against God and their refusal to ever repent. That brought the judgment upon them. Joshua happened to be the instrument of God to bring that judgment. That was delayed for 400 years. The people don't know all the story. Abraham, when Abraham is alive, God says to him, I'm gonna give you the land of the Amorites, but I'm not gonna give it to you right now because the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet risen to its full, you know, to that overflowing point. So 400 years 
pass before the judgment comes. So, I mean, think about it. So God is, he's long-suffering. He's waiting for the Canaanites to repent. They never do. And so now it's time to judge. They go beyond the point of no return. But what is my point? My point is it had only one thing to do. There was only one issue at stake or that brought the judgment. And the one issue was their sin and continual rebellion. And so now we see the same thing that happened to the Canaanites is happening to the Israelites because they're doing the same thing the Canaanites did. And so when God judges, he judges for one reason. He judges because of continued rebellion against his will, his plan, his purposes, and a continued shunning of the offers of his grace. And there finally comes that point where God judges. And that's where Israel is now. So, but again, it's, you know, the same things that were said about the dealings with the Canaanites go in and, and completely destroy them. That's what is happening here in Jerusalem to those that are rebelling against God. So, but again, don't touch anyone who has the mark. So begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. Then he said to me, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. And while they were killing, I was left alone. I fell face down crying out, alas, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? So you see here, here again, we see Ezekiel not glorying in their destruction, but grieving over their destruction. He answered me, the sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see, so I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded. So again, going back to this, this whole thing of, of judgment, and again, as there's much criticism of a God who would judge, you know, I think often we just fail to realize the kind of evil that we're talking about here. And, and we forget that, you know, God loves the world. God loves, God loves humanity more than any person does. God loves the world so much he gave his one and only son, right? So you can't get a greater love for people than God has. And with that deep, deep, great, great love that God has, if God ends up having to judge somebody, you realize that, yeah, they really that was the only alternative. There was no other remedy. And I think a lot of times because we hear people in our context you know, looking at this kind of stuff and talking about it and saying, oh, how could God do that? And how could God judge evil? A lot of times it's, you, don't, you just don't realize how, how 
really, really bad people could be. Really, really bad things can be. You know, there's a philosopher who, he's a, he's a current philosopher. He's, he comes originally out of Eastern Europe, came from what was formerly Yugoslavia. And he was one of these guys at a, at a younger age, you know, very intelligent, very intellectual person. Just the, this whole idea of a God who would judge people and all that, he just thought, you know, that, that's so, that's just so over the top. There's no way, there, there's no, you know, I, I, I would never believe in any kind of a God like that. Well, his nation went into a conflict in which his people were devastated and there were all kinds of atrocities that were committed against his people. And as he lived through this and he saw the atrocities, he began to think there has to be some form of retribution for this. How, how could they do this and just, you know, get away with it? And he then began to understand why there has to be a judgment. Because if there's no judgment, there's no justice really in the world. And eventually he came around to recognizing that what the Bible says about righteousness and justice and about times when God will judge, it has to be true. But it's interesting how sometimes it takes the experience of a radical evil confronting a person in order to wake them up to how evil things really can be and how evil has to be stopped. Evil has to be stopped. And we could make reference to all kinds of historical points where there was a proliferation of evil in various cultures and societies. The most common one probably is what happened under the Third Reich. And even though that was now quite a while ago, it still rings in everybody's ears the the horribleness of all of that. And so if we struggle with the judgment idea that God judges, we do so, I think, because we don't understand the nature of God and the holiness of God, and we don't understand the true nature of evil. If we get a grip on those two things, then we understand that there is a judgment and it's, it's righteous, it's just. So now he goes on in chapter 10. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli. This is my new favorite term, lapis lazuli. <laughs> I was telling Cheryl, and I think I've said this before, I've never even heard this word until I discovered it a couple of years ago. And it's a stone. Uh, but the other translations read sapphire. So, but I like saying lapis lazuli. So that's what it was. Above the vault, uh, that was over the heads of the cherubim. And so the Lord said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple 
when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when the Lord commanded the man in linen, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, the man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took up some of it and put it into the hands of the man in linen who took it and went out. Under the wings of the cherubim could be seen what looked like human hands. I looked and I saw beside the cherubim four wheels, one beside each of the cherubim. The wheels sparkled like topaz. As for their appearance, the four of them looked alike. Each was like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of four directions the cherubim faced. The wheels did not turn about as the cherubim went. The cherubim went in whatever direction the head faced without turning as they went. Their entire bodies, including their backs, their hands, and their wings were completely full of eyes as were their four wheels. And I heard the wheels being called the whirling wheels. Each of the cherubim had four faces. One face was that of a cherub. The second, the face of a human being. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up. These were the living creatures that I had seen by the Kabar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the cherubim spread their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels did not leave their side. When the cherubim stood still, they also stood still. And when the cherubim rose, they rose with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Wow. So there we have it. And again, it's the same description. We read this description in those first couple chapters, as I mentioned. But notice one difference here in verse 14, when it's talking about the faces in the early chapters, it says one had the face of an ox, and here it's replaced with one had the face of a cherub. And so the question is, why the difference? And the answer is, no one knows. Maybe a cherub looks like an ox, um, but we don't know. But there's two other places in scripture where we find something similar, but it is different as well. So in Isaiah chapter six and in Revelation chapter four, you have the description of very similar beings, but I think they're different. Now in Isaiah, they're not called cherubim, they're called seraphim. And they have six wings instead of four. In Revelation chapter four, they're not called, they're called living creatures. They have six wings instead of four. And in both Revelation and in Isaiah, and this is the reason I do think that these are different but very similar beings, in Revelation four and in Isaiah six, it seems that their place 
is right there permanently around the throne. And they cry out day and night, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. For the month of November, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled One Minute Answers to Skeptics, Concise Responses to the Top 50 Objections and Questions by Charlie Campbell. Learn how to give a defense for the faith in a conversational style and strengthen your own confidence in the existence of God and the reliability of the Word. The book One Minute Answers to Skeptics by Charlie Campbell is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ezekiel. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.